Welcome to Flashpoint, the Fire Inside podcast. Featuring leadership and team building principles designed to ignite your inner fire and help you reach your full potential. On our program, you will learn from professional athletes, military and business experts, inspirational figures, leaders in the fire service, and other top achievers who have reached the pinnacle of success in their chosen fields. And now your host, international speaker and best-selling author, Frank Viscuso. Eugene Stolowski, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to have you. It's good to see you. Oh, it's great to be here. Yeah, I mean, well, we've had some good times, uh, you know, you and I talking over the past few years. I've gotten to know you. And it's interesting because, of course, I met you the way a lot of people have met you. I sat in on your seminar. Yes. Um, talked Talking about Black Sunday. Yep. And um, came up to talk with you afterwards. And uh, man, what an interesting story. And I said uh, before the show, you know, I'm talking to Chris, is that you know, we've been taught our whole lives that experience is the best teacher. And I just don't really believe that in our industry. I think other people's experience is the best teacher. Yeah. Right. That's the way I've always felt. I, I wanted to hear the real life stories coming yeah. through the fire service. I wanted to hear what really happened to members out there. Right. Yeah. Especially in FDNY when there's such an um, interesting history. And, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, any it's almost like anything that could possibly happen seems to happen in New York at one point or another. Yes. <laughs> um did you grow up wanting to be a fireman? Yes, I, I yeah. think from day one. I think I always say it was it's 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 in your blood for yeah. some reason. Yeah. And, and my father was not a fireman. Uh, I had cousins and I had uh, an uncle that was a volunteer fireman and stuff like that. But you know, it wasn't immediately in my family. But from as early as I can remember, I was chasing fire trucks around in the neighborhood, and when the whistle went off, and that's. All I ever wanted to do. Yeah. You know, other than being a garbage man, maybe that was all I ever wanted to do. <laughs> so you were just attracted to big trucks. I was attracted to big trucks, yeah. riding in the garbage truck when I was a kid and helping the guys in the neighborhood and then chasing fire trucks down the road when the whistle went off. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And so how did it happen? Did you start as a volunteer? Yeah, I started as a volunteer in, in uh, Keensburg, uh, New Jersey. Yeah. And then uh, went to Texas and did it down there for a little while and then came back and was in Hazlitt. Um, but before I had left to go to uh, Texas, I took the test for the New York City Fire Department uh, in 1992. And that was the ultimate dream, I guess. Was, yeah. you know, I mean, I grew up in Jersey. I had cousins that were Jersey City firemen. I, you know, I could have been a Newark fireman maybe. You know, I had family from there. But you know, the ultimate dream was the New York City Fire Department, I think. You know. So early on in your career, yeah, did you... Did you have any moments where you said, this is it? This is what I signed up for? Yeah. Oh, no. You know, it, I, I, you know, going through the volunteer service, you know, fighting fires in, in, in Keensburg, a busy department. Yeah. You know, uh, we did a lot of work down there. Uh, great firemen, great guys to learn from. And, and, you know, getting into your first fires and, you know, just the excitement of it. You're like, you know, this, this is definitely really what I want to do. Yeah. You know. Not many high rises in Keensburg like there are in New York. No, though, so no, there's some difference. a lot of difference. There was a big difference in there, but you know, uh, we had a couple of high rises, but we, I, I don't think I ever had a fire in one of them until I actually went to the city. But yeah, um, definitely did a decent amount of work there. Where you know, I definitely learned from some good, good firemen that you know, uh, some of them I take over some of the guys I worked with in the city. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I know some of the guys in Keensburg yeah. and in Hazlitt. Yeah, yeah I, I know yeah. quite a few of them actually. Yeah. So. Let's talk about 
Yeah, the day. Yeah. That that this incident occurred, Black Sunday. Yep. Uh, what was it like? Tell, take me through the through the morning because there was another fatality that day as well. Yeah. Did that happened before. No, it happened it after. Happened after. Yeah, it happened after us in Brooklyn. Yeah. So, yeah. so what was the day like leading up to the incident? I had my um, I was working what we call up and down. Um, you go in on a day tour and you work the day and then into the night and you're supposed to get off the next morning. Uh, we normally don't do that. We do that about once a month. Um, normally we go in at night, work at night, work the day tour and then leave. You know, we okay. work, you know. So um, I hated working up and down. So it yeah. ends up being the last tour I'm going to work in the firehouse. But um, uh, so I worked the day tour on Saturday. Um, blizzard. The blizzard had started on, on Friday night um, and toured through the city. Um, cold, you know, just snow, just a nasty, nasty weekend that it was going to be. Um, pretty uneventful on the day tour on Saturday, going into the night tour on Sunday. Um, working with, with uh, John Ballou, who was one of the members, ended up being killed on, on Sunday morning, mm -hmm. uh, working with him Saturday during the day. He was actually in the firehouse uh, paying back a tour uh, to a guy in the engine on that Saturday day tour. He was only going to work Saturday day. And uh, and he wasn't even supposed to be there. He was paying back a tour right. because he um, was going to get promoted to lieutenant. So we're on the rig driving around that day, you know, just doing different things. And the uh, battalion had called, said, we need a guy for overtime. I said, and I remember saying it to John. I said, John, you're going to take the overtime? He says, yeah, I'll call home, see what the wife says, you know, whatever. And, and he ended up taking it. You know, obviously, fateful thing that happens the next day. It's, you yeah. know, a guy that's not even supposed to be there. So then on the night tour, um, you know, Pretty uneventful on a night tour, too. We got relocated down to um, 42 truck, uh, you know, right before dinner time or something like that. Um, and, you know, they had a fire down there, you know, come back, you know, couple runs. And then into that morning, we had a run early that morning, right before this run came in. Uh, it was probably a gas leak. And, you know, we get back from that run and I walk into the kitchen and I'm standing in the kitchen getting ready to make coffee and, you know, finish up for the day. It was just before eight o'clock and the tones went off and, and this run came in. Um, Brennan Crawley, who was the probie at the time, uh, Brennan, whose uh, brother got killed on 9-11. Uh, it was the reason Brennan took the job. It's because his brother had gotten killed and to honor his brother. He wanted to become a New York City fireman. I, I think he might have done it anyway because he was a big buff. But, yeah. you know, he uh, he definitely did it because of what happened to his brother. He's got a month in a firehouse. He's there for a month. He graduated probie school at the end of December. And here he is. So he goes running out to the, the house watch to grab the ticket for this run. Gets on the, the box, you know, the radio, the, the intercom system. And he goes... Uh, uh, three and two, which is three engines, two trucks, uh, smoke on the third floor of uh, two, two, uh, 236 East 178th Street. And so we're first due technically on a ticket, the way it was set up. We, we should have had the fire floor, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but our response into this box, into this area, is, is difficult. We're actually, our company isn't even first due on this box anymore um, because of our response up there. It's... It's a decent response from our quarters up a hill, you know, into this neighborhood where we got to go. Um, 
getting into there was difficult because of the snow. Uh, it was a slow go. Um, uh, it was a box truck box in a, a normal street that John would have. John was the chauffeur. John Ballou. Um, he would have normally made a different turn. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to take a little bit of a different route to get there. But going into the box, n- nothing of an indication that there was a fire. You know, we had we had one reported call for smoke on the third floor, and no additional reports. You get a good job in a building, you get the dispatchers getting multiple phone calls, and they're usually on the on the radio telling you, right? You know, Bronx Letter Two Seven Rescue and Squad are on your box, and you get multiple phone calls. You're going to work, and you turn the corner, and it's blown out a few windows. Yeah, you got a job, right? Nothing like that coming into this box. Coming, getting closer to the building, no sights of smoke, no sights of fire. You know, initial company that gets there, 42 engine. Um, they're only a few blocks away. They're in there pretty fast. Their boss, what's he saying on a handy talkie? Nothing. Mm. He's not talking on a handy talkie. There's no sights of nothing. Everybody going into this box initially thinks they're going to a food on the stove. It's 8 o'clock on a blizzard Sunday morning. We're going to a fully occupied tenement-type building. Somebody's burning up their breakfast. Yeah. Smoke on the third floor. You know, and that's exactly, we go to these every day, you know. And so that's what everybody thinks they're going to. And even when we turn onto the block, I look up the street. There's nothing going on. There's nobody on the fire escape. There's no smoke, no fire from the front, no nothing. We get about halfway down the block. John's actually stopping the rig. We're not even going to get off the rig. When you go to a food on the stove or a call like this, the first due company goes into the building. And when we had turned onto that block, 33 truck beat us in. They were there already. So they were in the building looking to see what was going on. So again, nothing. You know, we don't think we're getting off the rig. Food on the stove. Yeah. And um, John gets about halfway down the block and he gets ready to stop the rig. And the first reports on the handy talkie come from the boss from 42 Engine. It's a captain, very cool, calm, collective guy. Um, gets on the radio and goes, you know what? And he's saying it just like this. He goes, you know what? Give the 1075, start stretching a line. And it's a working fire, you know, but still we think that's ah, a little kitchen fire. He, you know, no craziness going on in the radio, you know. Right. Everything's good. So I tell Brendan, I said, all right, let's go. You know, we think we got something, let's go. We get off the rig, we grab our tools, walk up the street. Now, did you work with Brendan regularly? or it's Well, just this- he's only been there a month, and right. I, I don't think that I, I don't remember maybe even working with him at all okay before um maybe one other tour you know um that we had worked together this is going to be the first real fire that he's going to go to yeah you know and uh and he's going to operate at he went to one other job besides this but they didn't really do too much it was a smaller you know little tiny thing that you know they didn't have to do too much this is going to be the first time he's really going to operate and i think it's i i really think it's the first time that i i actually worked with him so we truck up the street to go in the building. I had the irons um, the, uh, uh, the, with the forcible entry team. Brennan had the can. Um, and we had Lieutenant Myron was our boss. He was the other, one of the other members that was killed there that day. Um, we cut up the street. We get up into the building, start walking up the stairs. <laughs> Don't, I remember walking in the front of the building. And then I remember being on the fire floor. I don't remember walking up the other two flights of stairs. 
you know, and guys used to tell me, well, you, you know, you've done it thousands of times. Mm. That's why you don't remember it. You know, you just, you remember the things, you know. Yeah, the important the things. Important and things. that's just getting from point A to B. Right? Yeah, the, the, the front of the building to take a look. So you remember that going in front of the building and then you remember being on the fire floor because anything in between wasn't important. So we get up to the fire floor. The boss from 42 is standing there in the staircase waiting for the hose team to come up. And 33 truck is in doing their search, looking for fire. Looking on the fire the, floor. On the fire floor. Very light smoke condition coming out of the apartment. Um, no heat, you know, but very light smoke condition. Again, by the, by the odor, I know it's not a food on the stove, but it doesn't seem like much of a fire. Myron tells the boss from 42, we're going up above. 27 truck, we have the floor above. Um, we're going to go up above and do our search for victims and for fire and extension. We go head upstairs. When we get up to the floor above, the apartment right over the, the fire apartment is open. The door is open already. So we didn't have to force entry. Um, very light smoke condition coming out of there. No heat. can see all the way down the hallway. Um, almost not even a need to put your mask on. You know, and in all reality, the entire time Joey DiBernardo operated in there, he didn't have his face piece on. You know, we had our face pieces on. I always says because we had Brendan with us. It was a probie. Yeah, you just want to say this is the right way <laughs> to do it. This is the way we're supposed to do it. I always right. says we're not going to corrupt him right now. We're going <laughs> we'll to wait a few months. We'll get to that. You know, because I always remember guys telling me, you know, you're going to learn how to operate in the field when you get in the field. Yeah. The way we do it in probie school is one way. The way we do it out in the field is a little bit different. But I said, all right, you know, we'll put our mask on. No big deal. Get Brennan to do the right thing. And, but like I said, the smoke condition was nil. And I never put my hood on. It was always around my neck. But I would never pull it up over my head because I wanted to feel what was going on. Mm -hmm. If something was changing, if I needed to get out, you know, if, if it starts to drive me to the floor, I got to. You know, I got to think about getting out. If I, and I'm not going to feel that all the time when we're in all this bunker gear. Bunker gear is a great thing, but it also can cause some issues in the fire service because of being encapsulated too much and not feeling. I always say, you know, if you think you're in trouble, you might have been in trouble five minutes ago because you got all this bunker gear on and you didn't just realize that you were in the situation that right. you were in. Conventional gear was a little bit different. I fought fires years ago in conventional gear. It was a little different than... With the pull-up boots. With pull-up right. bolts and, you know, not always having a hood and things like that. So it's a great thing. It saves lives. It saved Robert Weidman's life when he was in that fire in Brooklyn in that window. And you see him, he's a shadow and he's engulfed in fire. If he didn't have all his bunker gear on, he would have been dead. Yeah. But it also might have put him in that position too where he was in a little deeper than he might have needed to be. We had a chief that used to tell us, we are bunkered up a little bit too much. And he was actually the chief that was on our floor that day of this fire. Okay. And from the 17th Battalion. And he used to say, you know, I think you're bunkered up a little bit too much. So I always wore my hood around my neck. I could pull it up if I needed it, but I always had the exposure of the ears and stuff that I could feel what was going on. Especially as a truck guy on the floor above. And we did it a lot in 27 truck where... We were operating where, you know, we weren't right where the fire was. 
we were where the fire was possibly coming up to, mm-hmm. you know, and we needed to feel some of that stuff. So I, I always felt safer doing it that way. So my hood's around my neck, my, my face piece is on, and we start to enter into the building to do our search, looking for victims, looking for fire. I go down the hallway, right towards the bathroom. It's a little L-shaped hallway going down past the kitchen on the right because Myron had went right. I'm going to go left. So I walk down the hallway, a couple closets there, look in, nothing there, come to the bathroom, nothing in the bathroom, nothing going on. But we're getting reports of people being on the fourth floor. And almost continually through this job, we got reports of people being on the fourth floor of this of this apartment. Now, okay. Nobody was there, but we continually got reports of people being on the fourth floor. Almost to the point where we jump. When you, If you ever listen to the radio transmissions, Almost right up to the point where we jumping at it, where we're jumping out of this building, we're getting reports of people being up there. Mm. So when I get to the bathroom, because we're getting these reports and I can tell nobody's in there, I got to get the bedroom started. So I turn around, never physically went into the bathroom at the end of this hallway because I could see everything that was in there. There's nobody in there. I turn around, I go to the first bedroom. There's a padlock on the door. When we come up to padlocks on doors in, in New York City. And across the country, I always tell guys, you got to think right away. It's an illegal occupancy. Nobody puts padlocks on bedroom doors just for no reason. I've heard different stories from, well, Camden, New Jersey was yeah. one of them, <laughs> from my friend Brian Emmerdecker, who you know very I've well. I've heard too. many Brian Emmerdecker <laughs> stories. But he talked about a uh, fire about they had a drug addict in the family, and they yeah. were trying to lock the person from getting out. It wasn't an illegal occupancy, mm. but they were trying to lock the person from getting out. I said, this is not, we're not going to decide this when we're in a building, you know, in a fire condition. Right. We'll figure that out later on. If you find a padlock and a bedroom door, illegal occupancy, we could have some screwy things going on here. We could have walls put up. We can have some things going on. Mm -hmm. Well, this is what's going to happen here on this day. We got an illegal occupancy and eventually we're going to have this illegal wall that's in here that's going to cause our issues. So I know that I got this illegal occupancy right here and there because I'm popping these doors with locks on them. So what I tell guys nowadays, you've got to get on the radio and just let everybody know that you're doing this, okay? Mm-hmm. Two seven iron saw units, I'm forcing padlocks on bedroom doors. I got, a, you know, SROs up here, single room occupancies is what we call them. You know, let everybody know on the fire ground that something screwy is going on here. You know, when the smoke clears and it's whatever, then so be it. But I always say, better to take, you know, the 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 break into the chops back in the firehouse than going to the hospital or the funeral for a guy that got killed because you didn't make a radio transmission that possibly could have changed some people's operations. Right. Especially that chief that's on the street. He's never going to be in this building. That deputy chief that was standing on the street was never in this building. He doesn't know it's an illegal occupancy. He got 40 years on the job dealing with these buildings for his you entire career. You can't possibly know every building in New York City. No, no, yeah. nobody can. And and he's got 40 years on the job of dealing with this in these neighborhoods. He's always worked in the Bronx and Harlem. And he's thinking he's dealing with a regular tenement type building. But when you're dealing with an illegal occupancy, you're not dealing with a regular tenement type building. It's, a little, it's different. We got to make some changes here. He's not going to know that unless we radio that to him. Very vital piece of information. Mm-hmm. So many guys out there that want to talk on the radio and say whatever they want to say just to hear their voice. 
man. We got some vital stuff that needs to get out. Right. You know? Well, we, we talk and we train about that. You know, yeah. you, you have your, of course, Mayday mm-hmm. uh, transmissions, Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. You also have urgent, urgent, urgent. Yep. But you also have just vital information, which is one of the reasons why we'll let our youngest firefighters sometimes, uh, you know, with just one, two months on the job, when we pull back into the fire station, we'll have them get on the radio and report us back because we want them to get used to keying that mic and saying things too because you never know if they're going to come across information. Yes. And you don't want them to think, oh, I'm not, I can't use my mic yet. Yeah. I'm only a probie. I'm only a probie. It's, right. Yeah. And we say it to the probies, we say it to everybody, you know, tomorrow I'm going to, to flips with our new officers and I'm going to say it to those guys again. And you know, obviously they've been on the job for a while, but still reinstill it to them. Today. These are vital pieces of information that need mm-hmm. to be given no matter who's giving it, the probie or the 40 year chief, we got to give this information out. You know, so there are certain things that need to be said. And and it goes back to that saying that everybody is a safety officer. Yes. Everybody. Yes. You know. So we start doing that. We we don't make that radio transmission. It was never instilled in us back then about this. Mm -hmm. You know, we, myself, Brennan, Jeff, we instill it now. Um, But so that radio transmission is not made. Nobody up there knows we're dealing with an illegal occupancy except for Myself, Brennan, and probably Myron, because we're the only one forced in these doors that have locks on them. Even the guys that come in behind us probably aren't sitting there and looking at the door and saying, oh, there's a padlock on it. You know, the door's open already. They're not going to, you know, they're going to be in there looking at other things. They're not going to look at the door. So we're the only ones that really know this. You know, and if we say it, then maybe the company down below also, well, hey, we're doing the same thing down here. We got, you know, everybody knows this building's a little screw. Mm-hmm. But we search the rooms, we go room to room, we start searching the rooms, we find nothing. We don't find any victims, we don't find any fire. And we eventually get to the point where we're in a, what was, what was technically the third bedroom, but was, what was actually, should have been a living room. There's a wall in there. We don't realize that this wall is separating us from another part of the apartment, mm-hmm. you know. It eventually becomes feeling like it's a maze, like, you know, something's not right and whatever else. But the smoke condition, the fire, there was no fire. We didn't see, I never saw any fire up there. There was no heat. We was never driven. I was never driven to the floor by any heat. You know, I was standing in the apartment the entire time. My hood's around my neck. You know, no heavy, the smoke wasn't that bad. I could see 10, 15, 20 feet at times, depending on the wind shift. We, you know, we had opened all the windows. We were doing our search. No fire, no victims. When I eventually meet up with Myron, I, I, uh, he meets up with me in that third bedroom. And uh, I say to him, I said, everything's negative behind me, boss. I didn't find any fire. I didn't find any victims. He doesn't say anything to me. He's not concerned about nothing. You mentioned one time yeah. that you looked out the window, you saw the fire escape. That was afterwards. That, that was after- this is going to be after this okay. point. Yeah, I, had, I hadn't looked at any of the rear windows as of yet. Okay. There were um, one, two, three, four rear windows that were taken in, in these rooms that we were in. Brendan took three of them. The one that I took had an air conditioner unit in it. So I never could get a real good look out right. of the window. So he, Brendan had taken the other three. So I had never really looked out of any of the rear windows as of yet. When I meet up with Myron in this bedroom, uh, in bedroom three, and this is what I say to him, everything's negative behind me. Like I said, he didn't see overly, overly concerned about anything. He didn't, uh, 
He didn't say he needed help with anything. He didn't say that, you know, he, he thought he was missing anything. He, he didn't say nothing to me. So at that point, I'm like, all right, we're going to search for extension. We're going to monitor the conditions, wait for the fire to go out below, you know, but we're going to open up baseboards, door frames, any place extension could come up mm -hmm. in these types of buildings. And that's what we start to do. We start opening up everything, never finding, like I said, and Brennan would probably tell you the same thing. He's never told me anything different, but he goes, I never saw any fire either. Never saw any fire. You know, did you guys have a hose line no. while you were doing well, this? Well, there was a hose line at, at the front door, which would be the second hose line that was stretched. The way our job operates, first hose line stretched to the fire floor in this type of building. Second hose line is stretched to the floor above, okay. which is exactly what happened. At some point, I moved back to the front door, and that hose line is there, the charged hose line. What they're doing is they wait at that front door until we, as the truck company, come back and tell them, where there might be fire. They can't just go into the into the apartment without realizing which direction they might need to go in. They can mm -hmm. get cut off also. So they wait at the front door for the truck company to come back and tell them. So I'm at the front door at this point, um, and that hose line's there. And at that point, the radio transmission from below comes from the chief um, that's down there. And he says, um, and he said, and it's another thing, we talked just about some messages and urgent message one of them um he doesn't give it as an urgent message for the loss of water the first hose line that was stretched on the fire floor lost water uh, i always say we're never going to really probably know why it lost water uh, there's a lot of theories out there um my the one that i hear the most the one that most people agree with me and the one that i think it was was ice in the hose line Ice chunk in the hose line, clogged the line, the line lost water because the line was coming and going. They did have water. He was he was hitting some fire. All of a sudden, it went dead. He shut it down. It got hard again. He started moving in, and it went dead again, coming and going, coming and going. That hose line loses water. The second hose line that stretched to the floor above for our standard procedure is meant to come downstairs at that point to fight the fire, and then we will restretch a third hose line as needed. When the chief gives that report from the fire floor that that hose line lost water, he gives it as calmly as could be. He gets on the radio and all he says is 75, which is 75 engine, who was on the floor above with the hose line. Can you move your hose line down below? We lost water on the fire floor. It's exactly the way he says it. As calmly as could be, just like that. It sounds to me like, at that point, on this day, it sounded to me like they lost water down below, but they knocked most of the fire down. They just need this line to come down and mop it up mm -hmm. because he didn't give it as urgent, urgent, urgent. There was no craziness or commotion in the background. It was as calm as could be. 75, can you move your line down below? We lost water on the fire floor. 75 is going to go down below, fight the fire. I'm standing right there at the door when they leave and this radio transmission comes over. So I say to myself, all right, let me go back in and find Myra and make sure he heard that on the radio so he knows we don't have a hose line here right now. So if we need one, it's not going to be here. Yeah. So I walk back in. I actually walk right past the kitchen where all this fire in a few minutes is going to come from with my hood around my neck, looked into the kitchen, a couple of guys operating in there, looked right through the kitchen out the window to the other side, which goes into the courtyard. Conditions were 
hardly anything. Um, with all the fire that's going to be blowing through that kitchen in a few minutes, I can't believe that I didn't go, whoa, right. you know, it's hot in here. You know, right. something's going on. Get on the radio. Everybody's got it back. Nothing. And my hood's still around my neck. Felt nothing. Continue in to go find Myron at that point. And because uh, I want to make sure he heard that on the radio, that the hose line was gone. And I get in almost halfway into the apartment, almost to the, the bedroom in the rear, uh, bedroom two. And my vibe alert starts going off. And we're up here over 20 minutes or so now at this point. We've been more operating. So I was like, all right, you know, but the fire's going out down below. In a couple minutes, it's going to be under control. I'm going to pull my mask off. In all reality, I could probably pull my mask off now, like I said before. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to continue in. Still not any concern. It's not hot. Doesn't seem like we got anything going on. Meet up with Myron and Brennan in bedroom two. And the first thing he does is look at me. And I know he hears my vibe alert going off. And I, get, I just said to him, I'm okay, boss. Everything's fine. He says, all right, but 75 just moved their line out. Let's find the fire escape. So we know, now I know he knows the hose line's gone. Right. And see. you're just looking for that secondary means of egress if just, you need it. Yep, and he's right. just looking for the secondary means of egress if he needs it. He's not like, oh, let's get out of here. Let's go. He's not concerned either. It yeah. doesn't seem like. And he's got a lot more time on the job than I did. You know, some experience up there. And. So Brendan says, I know where the fire escape's at. And he grabs Myron, and they both walk over to the window that was in that third bedroom. Myron looks out the window and says, we can't get to that fire escape. The fire escape was to our right outside that window because the wall is here. Now, the legal wall was put there mm. to make another bedroom in this, in this building. He tells Brendan, start trying to breach that wall. And... And he doesn't say anything. He goes, Brennan, start trying to breach that wall. And he walks away from Brennan. Brennan says he wasn't gone very long. So he, he goes, I think he walked, went into the room and came right back. Brennan's trying to bash through the wall. Now, this wall was built with double half-inch sheetrock on both sides, floor to ceiling. Mm -hmm. Solidly, solidly built wall. So Brennan's... And, and just to clarify, mm -hmm. you you popped a couple locks, but they didn't lead to that portion. No. Right? This is blocked some other way yes and yeah I, and i guess they're they're putting more rooms up there yeah illegally putting an extra room in there they were renting out each single little room each single little bedroom in this right. apartment as an apartment okay which is what we like i said we call single room occupancies uh, right and we call them the same thing i saw yep. now mm -hmm. were they actually occupied at the time or yes. they were in the process they okay. were actually the, the only one that was not occupied at the time was the one where the fire came up okay so let's Go with he's breaching yeah. the wall he's trying to breach the wall he gets through half of the wall the one side i should say and myron comes back to him and they both start trying to go through the wall together with their tools that they have and then both of their vibe alerts start going off so myron's like all right jeans is going off already let's go we're out of here and he's getting ready to leave so they pick up all their tools they come walking back into bedroom two where i was and when they meet up with me i actually run out of air and I suck my face piece to my face. So I pull my face piece off because I could breathe in here. I'm fine. Yeah. Helmet comes off. Now my whole head is exposed. Still not diving to the floor like it's hot in here. You know, we got to get out of here. Anything. Still just standing there. Whole head is fully exposed. Brendan says, when I was standing there, though, he goes, you look like you were going to steal second base. He says, you made a move like you were going to go to the front door. 
and then you look back towards the window. When I made the move looking towards the front door, I, it, this is the first point in this fire that I could not see down the hallway. I couldn't see the front door anymore. Mm. It was black. It's getting ready. It's going. It's going to. So when you look down there and you can't see it, you're not going to go in that direction. Right. Just a normal instinct in your head and in your, your body. So I'm not going in that direction. I look to the window. There's the window. I'll go right to the window. And that's where we went because I couldn't, I'm not going to go to the black. I'm going to go to the light. Yeah. And that's exactly what we were looking at. And he goes, you look like you're going to steal second base. Well, I looked down the hallway first and I couldn't see it. In a couple of minutes, it's going to be blowing out through that hallway. And we go to the window because I can see the window and I can get air there. I could talk to guys in the back. We were fine. Still think we're fine because it doesn't, you know, I'm not in that, that black and I'm not in that heat. I'm, you know, I, I, I'm not getting driven to the floor. So we jump up into the window. This is the first time I get a look out the back of this building. And I look to the right and I see the fire escape. I said, all right, well, we, it's not my fire escape because I can't get to that. I got to have another fire escape mm -hmm. legally. Yeah. You know, this is illegal. What was totally done in this building. So I said, okay, I see ROV on the fire escape. I said, Howie, I'm okay. Just need some air. He doesn't say nothing to me. But I said, that's not my fire escape, so let me look to the left. So I look to the left, and there's nothing there. There's no fire escape. I was like, we don't got a fire escape. I said, there's Joey. He was in the room next to us, two windows over. Joey DiBernardo. I said, hey, Joey, I just need some air. He says, they're sending it from above. I look up. Here it comes. Somebody on the roof decided to lower a mask down to us. Mm -hmm. What I think is we're gonna, I'm going to pull that mask in the building and untie it, and we're going to buddy breathe and walk right back out. Each of us taking a hit every so often, walk right back out of the apartment because everybody's pretty much out of air at this point. Okay. Brennan had run out of air. He took his regulator out, um, left everything else on. He's bunkered up like a probie. He's in yeah. the turtle shell. He's, everything is on. So when he takes his regulator out, it's just his regulator that's out. His mask is on. Everything's still on. And Myron told him to dump his mask. He didn't need it anymore. At this point, when after I pulled the mask in the building put it at the floor. Myron actually jumps up into the window and is sitting on top of the window gate that's in that window. Brennan is off to the side trying to get his mask off and I'm on the floor untying the mask that they had just dropped into us. I look at Brennan a couple times to give him the mask to maybe take a hit off of it if he needs some air and he's not looking at me. And the second, after the second time I looked at him, I go look back down to finish untying the, the mask and from behind us, Ooh, hot as hell. Mm. Brennan always says, he goes, it was a nice nice day on the beach. And then all of a sudden, the trap door opened and you were in the middle of hell. He says he was standing there with his back to the window and he goes, it hit him in the side of the face. He goes, I thought the side of my face was getting melted off of my body. And he had his hood on and everything. Ear flaps were down. Yeah. He gets driven up into the window. Myron's in the window and he bends over at this time and he's laying across the window gate. And Brennan and I both were up over the top of him as it's what originally obviously it is, is all the heat and superheated gas is blowing over our heads. Not actual probably fire at that point in a couple minutes or not even it's going to be fire. But so we're up in the window and Myron starts giving maydays. Mayday, 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 ladder two, seven, mayday. He gives three sets of maydays. And the last set of maydays, and they were real fast right after one another. And in the last set of maydays, 
We jump off of him at that point, and I knew, just we got to go out this window, yeah. I, you know. And I'm sure uh, Myron knew that. Brendan thinks the fast truck or Calvary's coming to get him. I, I always say the fast truck is probably one of the biggest farces on the fire service. I know it's great for a chief to have it in his back pocket, mm -hmm. you know, but it's the fast truck doesn't save too many firemen. Um, it's a great thing to have in certain circumstances, but firemen save themselves or other guys from within the building save them. You know, it doesn't normally happen with the fast truck on the street. And the position that our fast truck was in for this type of fire and situation, they needed to be on the roof right. and they're five stories below. And it's not going to happen. So Brennan thinks the Calvary's going to come get him, obviously. Brent, Myron and I knew we're going out this window. You know, I'm sure Myron knew. He never said anything to us because when we started lowering him out this window, because we grabbed him at this point, we start to lower him out this window, he doesn't say nothing. <laughs> you know, he's not like, well, what are you doing? Like, you know, he knew, you know. And of course, I knew. I says, there, we ain't going anywhere else. We're not going back that way. And I says, this is it. So start to lower Myron out the window. I got him by the pants. Brennan's got him by the shoulders. Uh, I got to let him go first because drop his legs down. I get back into the building as low to the floor as I can, as close to the wall and the window as I can, and give Brennan some room. And Brennan lowers him the rest of the way out the, of the window and lets him go. He said he watched him fall to the ground. He says, I remember when Joe Theismann got hit on Monday Night Football by Lawrence Taylor, and we watched his leg get broken. He says, probably the first time we ever saw a leg or something get broken on TV. He says, that's what Myron's legs look like. He says, he ain't walking home tonight. That's exactly what he's saying in his head. Mm. Myron, when he hit the ground, he tore his body apart, though, and he broke his neck. And he, he was the only guy in the backyard that was dead. He, he was instantly killed. Right after I knew that Myron, it, that Brennan had dropped Myron, I jump up and I grab Brennan. I, I was like, I got to get him out of this building. He's probably going to jump out of this building. I know that, you know, nobody's going to stay in this position, but I got to just make sure he's out of this building. He's the probie. I got to get him out of here. Right. So I grab him and I start throwing him out the window and he goes, the whole time, you, he told me this later on because I didn't realize it until he told me. But he goes, the whole time you're throwing me out the building, you kept on saying, you're going to be okay. You're going to mm -hmm. be okay. I says, we had to stay calm. I says, if I'm not calm and you're not calm, we're going to die right here because we're going to bounce off of one another and we're just going to be like a chicken with no head. And, you know, that's going to yeah. be it. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You're going to be hooked all the way out the window. So he gets out the window and he starts to slide past the window grate and he grabs onto the window gate because your whole body does not want to get thrown out of a window. Right. So he's hanging onto the window gate and he's looking up at me now and he, and he always says, when he goes, I looked up at you, he goes, all I saw was your face in the smoke and the heat and then the fires rolling behind you. He says, that's all I see. He says, I don't see any else of your body. I says, well, I'm looking down at you. I says, what were you thinking? Because we never said anything to each other. I yeah. said, but what were you thinking? And he goes, I'm looking up at you going, if I don't go, Gene can't go. And I was, I was looking down at you going, if you don't go, I can't go. And he lets go. He flies to the ground. Now, he flew to the ground. He ends up landing on his back. And the, uh, the, the air pack actually hit the ground first, came up and, you know, broke his sternum, broke a bunch of ribs. Mm. He had a lot of injuries, but not 
he walked out of the hospital six days later and went home. That's incredible. You know, very like incredible story to go five stories and and for that, you know, to happen. That he walks away basically almost unscathed, you know. Um, I think the worst part of his injuries now are psychological injuries, you know, from the PTSD and stuff. Yeah. You know, physically he's was able to go back to work and things like that. As soon as he let go, I just barrel rolled out the window. I'm just basically diving head first, just getting the hell out of the room that I'm in because I do not want, I'm full bunker. Well, other than my head, I'm in full bunker gear, you know, yeah. and I don't want no part of this fire. And I used to say, I remember saying it about people in the trade center. It's like, why'd they jump? Why did they just, you know, go back in, take a little smoke and just, they know they were going to die, obviously. You don't want no part of that fire coming at you, no matter how much bunker gear you got on. If you got that much fire coming at you, you want no part of it. Yeah. And you want to be as far away from it as you can. So I'm just getting the hell out of that room. And as I dive out the window, something on my gear gets caught on the window gate and it actually catches me and flings me to be straight up now, feet first, and I'm stuck to the window gate. Thank God, because I think if that window gate's not there and I just dive out the window, I'm going head first, Superman into the ground, and I'm face planting. I'm not here today. Yeah. But something on that window gate catches me, fling, flings me up, so I'm straight up and down, and I'm stuck to the window gate now. So I'm, sta I'm, I'm hanging there, and I'm like, all right, well, it's cooler out here than it was in there. But if fire blows out that window below me, I'm going to get cooked. I either better fall or somebody better come get me. And I fell yeah. right at that point. Fly to the ground. I don't remember falling. I remember that last moment of thinking those thoughts and then going to the ground. And the next thing I'm going to remember is waking up in the backyard. When I hit the ground, I blew my body apart, uh, my lower half of my body at least. But I internally decapitate my neck at that point. Uh, same injury that killed Dale Earnhardt, I always say, is the injury that I had. Um, mm -hmm. He tore his head right off of his body when he hit the wall. And when I whiplashed my neck, I tore my neck and my head right off of my body. I'm laying in the backyard and I'm blue, gray, whatever, because the guy that gets to me, and I always say, thank God he was a paramedic before he came on the fire department. And he rolls me over and he knows my neck is messed up and I'm blue and I'm gray. I'm not breathing. Whether I was clinically dead or not, I don't know. So... He opens my airway, and he's going to give me air, my me breaths if he has to. But he, as soon as he opened my airway, I started breathing, and I opened my eyes in the backyard. And this is the next thing I remember: is I'm looking up at the rear window of this, or the rear of this building, and I'm looking at the window that I just jumped at. A fire is blowing out that window, hmm. and a guy that's on they 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 had started the roof rope operation. The guy's just coming over the rear parapet wall to try to come get us. I remember seeing the back of his, his one leg and the back of his coat, his name. He's just coming over. The, all six of us that were in this building at this point that had the jump are on the ground already. And this guy is just coming over. Nothing was going to save us here on this day except our own personal safety systems. We needed to have our own personal safety systems on this day, our own personal ropes. And the only one with the rope was Jeff. Jeff was the only one that had a rope. It wasn't a safety system. It was just rope in a bag that he had. He actually bought it six months to the day mm. down in um, Baltimore when Firehouse used to have their their uh, conference, conference there. there. 
July 23rd, 2004, he buys that piece of rope. Six months later to the day, January 23rd, 2005, he's using it mm. to get out of this building. When he had gotten to his window with this piece of rope, he got chased into this room um, by fire over the top of an air conditioner, that other window in the same room that we were in. And he's out this window. You will hear him. If you ever hear the radio transmissions, you hear him on the radio. We're bailing out of here. You better hurry it up. And he gets to the end and he sees Joey that was in that window next to us. And he's got this piece of rope. And he says, Joey, I got a piece of rope, but I got nothing to tie it to. Because he's three quarters, of, his three quarters of his body is out of this window. Yeah. So he throws the rope to Joey. Joey holds him and Jeff goes. But as Jeff swings, he has to go to Joey's center point, which is the window next to him. So he's going to swing out like Tarzan, comes back, hits the building, gets the wind knocked out of him and falls to the ground. And just to talk on that, I mean, yeah. Jeff was willing to be an anchor for Joey. Yes. And then Joey said. Joey says, you got kids, you got a family, you know. I'll, yeah. I'll anchor you. Yeah, I'll anchor you. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, Jeff goes, you, you know, they fought <laughs> not for very long at the window, but they had a little argument like, no, you go, no, you go. You know, and that was what Joey said to him. You got kids, you got a family, you go. You know, what Joey did was unbelievable on that day. Yeah. You know, it really was. So Jeff goes out, hits the building, gets the wind knocked at him. He falls to the ground. He's, he's down and out. Joey's got the piece of rope now. He's like, well, if I got to use it, I'll use it, you know. And he wraps it around the gate and he belays himself also with it. He goes, if I hear the hose line coming in down the hallway, I'm not going. I'll wait. But the fire, he's not there very long. The fire pushes him right out of the building and he starts to slide down. I always say when I do my talks, I always say, Joey's done this slide probably thousands of times. Mm -hmm. This is John Salka's Get Out of Life. When, right. when John Salka taught this years ago, get a piece of rope, tie it into something, and get out the building, belay yourself out of the building. Joey taught this. This was Joey's life. He taught across the country. Yeah. He taught ropes and rescue stuff. And this type of rescue, I'm sure Joey's done it thousands of times. He knows what he's doing. Sliding down the building, slide, 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 slide. Gets to about nine feet or so, and bink, the rope breaks, and he flies to the ground. Right where that rope probably wrapped around the building and frayed a little bit as Jeff was on it, mm -hmm. and then Jeff's weight, and then Joey's weight, it, it, it snapped, and he went to the ground. Joey landed on the ground and, and blew his body apart, his lower half of his body apart. And John Ballou was the last guy that actually came out of the building. He was at, ended up in the bedroom, in that third bedroom next to us. Um, and what had happened with John was um, when he came into the apartment, he met up with a guy from rescue in that apartment. And, and the guy from rescue is like, John, it's, you know, it, it was right when it was starting to change. He's like, it's getting a little, you know, shitty in here. You know, maybe it's time to go. But John knew 27 truck was still in there. The inside team, myself, Myron, Brennan. And I think John continued in to just come find us to make sure we got out. John was getting ready to be promoted to be an officer. He was a good fireman, aggressive fireman. He knew what he was doing, but he was coming in there to make sure we were safe and we were out. And as soon as he walked into bedroom three, I think it hit the fan and he got chased out the window and he ended up going to the ground too in, in the rear yard. And I always said, you know, 
it went from standing in that room to us jumping out of that building in a matter of seconds. And in less than a minute, all six of us were on the ground in the backyard. Wow. And it, and it was basically over. I mean, we were all down there and the apartment was fully involved. And this, that was it. This is a extremely well-documented case as far yeah. as... You know, I've seen the YouTube videos on it mm -hmm. where various members are talking about it. Um, you guys travel around the country teaching yep. this. Um, and I know that one of the things you talk about is is the report that came out afterwards and some of your beliefs. And, yeah. uh, and, and ultimately where I want to go with this is, and you've talked a lot about a lot of them while you told a story, but, but yeah. what do you think are the biggest takeaways? Let's just say we have a young firefighter here listening uh, in the same place where Brendan was, Yeah, you know, when this all happened. What do you want him or her to take away from this? Well, you know, we got to be aware of these illegal occupancies. Uh, first and foremost, this fire and, and what happened here on this day was caused totally by that illegal occupancy. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't jump out of this building because we didn't have ropes and things like that. We jumped out of this building because it was illegally occupied. The fire started because of illegal actions. The wall was put up that, that caused us not to be able to find fire and how it trapped us from not being able to get to the fire escape and also by funneling fire to block our main means of egress. So the, the wall blocked both of our means of egress by being put there. So to recognize... You know, illegal occupancies is a huge thing. Whether you're doing it on, on building inspection, whether you're doing it on an EMS run, you know, another right. thing that Brian always used to, from Camden always used to say to me is just, when I go to a building, it's mine until I decide I'm clearing the scene. I don't care what kind of call it is. And I don't know if it's legal or if it's not legal, right. but if you go there on an EMS run and the patient's on the first floor, but you want to go to the third floor of that building to take a look around, do it. You know, whether it's legal or it's not legal, I don't know. It's your building. They called you there. Well, I'm going upstairs to take a look around because I think something's wrong here. Yeah. You know, and if you get the sense of something being wrong in a building, you got to do something about it and let other guys know about it and, and you know, try to figure these illegal yeah. occupancies out. I told a story in Common Valor, my first book, about the story is actually called Behind Every Door. Uh -huh. And in this situation... They were trying to find a source of a light, hazy smoke condition. And uh, and there was one room in the basement that was locked. And uh -huh. the chief says, what's behind the store? The woman said, nothing, just some storage. We want to get in here. Mm -hmm. She said no a few times. Finally, they just you know, gained entry into there. And there was a guy laying, they think he was drunk, that it was laying on bed, uh -huh. who was smoking a cigarette. The cigarette fell. The fire was smoldering in the bed right next to him. Yep. Right. So, you know, just to, to yeah. add to your point, there's a lot of elite, every town. I don't I always go across the country and I could be in some Midwest town with in the middle of nowhere. You know what? Everybody's got these illegal occupancies and the signs are there. Even from the outside of a building, the signs are there of certain illegal occupancies. You know, so if we can find these. If you're driving around as a young firefighter, you look at things, look at buildings, look at everything you pass. If you see something that may not be right, hey, stop the rig. Let's go take a look at this. You know, I always say 30 satellite dishes on the outside of a building. Well, what the heck's going on here? Yeah. You know, is the guy a bookie or do we have an illegal occupancy here? He's a bookie. He's got to see all the football games. Yeah, maybe he needs all those satellite dishes. But 
you know, most likely we got an illegal occupancy because we got a cord from each one of those satellite dishes running to a TV to a different room. Yeah. You know, we got a guy from, he's in Rescue 4 now. When he was in 170 truck in, in Queens, um, he does a class, he does it at the FDIC on SROs, single room occupancies. And, you know, looking at these places that people are living in little tiny closets, they got beds in there with TVs and yeah. people are all over the place. And these illegal occupancies, you know, when they put up illegal walls and they do things that could hinder our operations and cause us to become trapped, it's a, it's a big deal. And we got to find these. And it, it's difficult to find them. It's difficult to shut them down, you know, but we got to do whatever you can. You have to pre-plan. You have to send yeah. it to the building department and let yeah. them do their thing. Yeah. And yeah. it's very difficult to, to handle those things. And once you get into a fire situation, if you find things like padlocks as you're doing a search or something like that, you got to get on the radio, tell people. No matter how much time, you could have a day on the job. You got to get on the radio and make that radio transmission. I always says, you know what, if they want to break your chops in the firehouse when you go back, great. It's better to get your chops broken than to go to the funeral or go to the hospital. Make that radio transmission. It's something's not right. You know, mm -hmm. when the smoke clears, we'll figure it out. But right there and then, we got a legal occupancy because there's padlocks on the door. There could be a wall. Put everybody on their toes to be a little bit more cautious. And even if you got a day on the job, you can do that. And you could save a life by doing that. I want to, I want people to know that this, this is to honor the oh, yeah. guys that lost their lives that day. Oh yeah. You know, I, I don't, I don't want them to, I don't want this incident to occur without people learning from it, without people knowing who they were. Yeah. You want to just talk about the firefighters that lost their lives that yeah, day? Yeah. I mean, you, you, you had Kurt Myron, you know, he was uh, a family guy. He had kids. Um, he was a covering officer, so we didn't know him very well. He wasn't a regular officer from our firehouse. Mm -hmm. uh, he ended up working. Again, another guy that probably wasn't even supposed to be there. First of all, he was working overtime for that 24-hour period. Um, he was actually supposed to work in a different firehouse. But because the guy that got hired in our firehouse was actually already a covering officer um, working in that other firehouse, he called Kurt up and said, could you go to 27 instead of coming to 92? You know, and Kurt said, yeah, I'll go to 27. So, you know, the two guys that got killed on that day weren't even supposed to be on that rick, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just, that's just the way it happens in the fire service. So Kurt ends up working there and, and he dies, you know, and like I said, we knew Kurt, you know, he, from covering, but we didn't know Kurt really, really well, you know. When you talk about John, you know, I knew John for the entire career, my entire career. He had a locker right across from me. Uh, I played golf with John, you know, uh, a great guy, you know, and a, another family guy. Yeah. Very devoted to his family. Very, you know, um, family oriented. Brothers, you know, big family. Another brother that was on our job that I had worked with too, um, down in Manhattan. Um, like I said, just overall great guy, you know. And a great fireman, you know, a great, uh, aggressive, good fireman. Get, like I said, getting ready to be promoted. Yeah. He was going to be a lieutenant. Uh, you know, I wouldn't doubt that he wouldn't have been, um, you know, a, a captain or a chief someday also. You know, he was a Manhattan college graduate, you know, working down in Manhattan when he took our job. You know, leaving, sometimes people leave lucrative jobs to become firemen. Yeah. And again, I think it's in the blood. 
You and just, then, well, I know quite a few. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah you're exactly you know, right. You know, one of the guys that I became friendly with after I got hurt graduated from Notre Dame University. You know, and, and ended up coming back and becoming a New York City fireman back in the late seventies. Mm. You know, and being a lieutenant eventually. But you know, these guys that leave these, it's just it's in your blood. It's what you want to do, and I think it was always in John's blood, and this is what he wanted yeah. to do. You know, um, and both of them pass away on that day, and then um, we lose Richie Scalfani that afternoon in Brooklyn. Yeah, um, at a different fire. At a different fire, um, a basement fire in a private dwelling. Um, he got caught on the staircase and, um, it was, there was a lot of stuff in the staircase again and his face piece got knocked off and he took probably one hit of the superheated gases and stuff that were there and right down seven steps from the front door of this building is where he went down and he died seven steps from the front door of the building. And like I said, I didn't know Richie. I, I know the story later on of, of, of his fire and stuff, but I, I didn't know him personally. Yeah. And then Joey DiBernardo passing away in 2011 because of injuries that he sustained at this job. Right. Um, even though it happened in 2011, it was a line of duty injury um, and it was a line of duty death. Um, I ultimately always say, you know, uh, the physical injuries probably aren't ultimately what killed Joey DiBernardo. It was the PTSD um, and, and, his, and his mental injuries because he was taking a lot of medications that he didn't need to be taken probably because of what happened. But his whole career was, his whole life was taken away from him on January 23rd. Mm. Everything he wanted to do from the time he was born, his father was a deputy chief. He was fighting right. fires in Brooklyn at 10 years old. You know, it was, this was his life. Yeah. And then teaching around the country and it, from the volunteer fire service to the career to teaching around the country, this is all that he did. And unfortunately, when you don't have the other outlets like Jeff and myself, you know, we had families, we, we had other, um, you know, sports interests, whether it was golf or hockey with Jeff or things that happen with your kids, those things and the family stuff helps with the PTSD. Because you're focused on other things focused, to take your mind yes, off. Yes, of, yeah. yes. Joey was focused on one thing. He didn't go play golf. He didn't go fishing. He didn't. Focused on one thing, it was the fire service. Firefighting. When that was taken away, the psychological stuff that Joey went through was was tremendous. And, and the physical injuries that he had, he was taking the pain medications for that, and then he's taking psychotropic drugs to try to counteract all the stuff that's going on psychologically. And both of those drugs are fighting against one another. And, and they don't mix well with one another. You know, and it's not like he took a whole bottle of pills and and and, and did himself in. He took a pill and he was supposed to take that pill with food. So when he ate something later on, he goes, oh, I got to take my pills. And he took it again. So he had two, he had the same pill on each side of his food, the way it was found in his autopsy. And those pills counted with the other pills that he was taking, stopped his heart. And in 2011, when he went to bed that night, he never woke up the next morning. And he ultimately died of injuries sustained here, but he ultimately died from PTSD because yeah. I think if he's not on some of that medication because of what happened, he's 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 still here. I uh, I I never want the memory of all four men you just mentioned. Yeah. To, you know, to leave yeah. the fire service. I want people to always know uh, the sacrifice they made, learn from it, yeah. and and understand that they're heroes. They're true heroes. Yeah, they are. You know? And anybody that's wearing a rope system has their memory on their hip. 
Well, and that's an interesting point you bring up because we have them. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, when, when a lot of these ropes are given to firefighters, many times there's resistance because they're thinking, I got this big bulky (laughs) thing now on my side. I got to wear this. This is stupid. It's like going to bunker gear. That's right. That's right. It's (laughs) more and more and more. (laughs) Yeah. But instead of just, and and this is just the message for people out there that may be issuing ropes to their members, instead of just issuing a rope, also issue the reason for the rope. Yeah, yeah. Let them listen to your story. Yeah. Listen to Jeff Cool. As Brandon still go out and, oh, yes. and teach. Yep, yep. And he's the only one that made it back to full duty, right? He's the only one that was able to physically go back to work. Like I said, his injuries weren't as severe and and physically he could go back to work and he did. And he's been back. He's still full duty um uh as a firefighter. Um mentally it took him a long time to do it. Again, you know, just the the mental anguish of going through what we all went through, you know, weighed heavy on him. And it took him a long time mentally to get back in the firehouse, three years, but mm. he was able to go back. And he's he's got, what is, we're coming up on the third, he's got 13 years on the job now, you know, because we're coming up on the 13th anniversary in January. Do you guys get yeah. together? Oh, yeah. Now, I'll see, uh, I see Jeff often. Actually, I was just talking to Jeff this week. Uh, I'll see Brennan probably Saturday at our Christmas party at the firehouse. I'm going to go down. Um, so we see each other decent off, you know, every few months at least. And sure. Joey's dad as well. Oh yeah. 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 And we're still talking. We're, we're going to get a van, uh, that we have donated to our families, the black Sunday families to give to the, uh, family transport through the fire family transport foundation. And we're going to get a van in Joey's and John and Kurt's and Richie's, uh, honor, uh, to, to, to be used with members uh, from our department. Um, so we're in a process of trying to do that, so talking to Mr. D and, you know, getting some things straightened out. And he runs a foundation for Joey, too, about getting grants to uh, for safety ropes for departments, the Joey D Foundation. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm very familiar with yeah. it. Yeah. Well, listen, Eugene, I really appreciate you coming in. Thank and sharing you. the Thanks story. Thanks for having I, me. I, well, you're welcome. I hope somebody can learn from it. That's yeah. the whole purpose of this. There's, yeah. Believe me, as you're sitting here telling the story, I'm actually, I'm getting, I don't think I've ever been more uncomfortable <laughs> listening to some, really, because yeah. I'm sitting here thinking, uh, it's just hard to hear. Being yeah. a firefighter, not only being able to uh, mentally put myself in a situation that you guys were in thinking, you know, what would I do in a situation like that? But just imagining what you guys went through, what the families went through, what yeah. your brothers and sisters and the fire department yeah. had gone through, but but thank you for not letting their memory die and not letting this, the lessons that yeah. we can learn from this incident, uh, you know, just disappear because it's valuable. This is yeah. why we have safety ropes. Yes. You know, this is the importance of, of that hose line, the importance of communication. Yes. Um, you know, and everything that you talked about. So thank you. Yes. Very thank much you. For coming. Thanks for having me. How can people get a hold of you if they need to? Um, they can email me, um, E S T O L O W S K I at yahoo.com if they need to get in touch with me. And, um, you know, if they want me to come out and do a talk and don't have a problem coming out and talking to anybody small, big, you know, I've talked to 10 people. I've talked to 2000, you know, yeah. so, you know, and I'm always at, I'll be at the FDIC this year. Uh, doing this class uh, on Black Sunday. That's every April in Indianapolis, Indiana. Yep. yep. Well, great. I will see you out there for yes. sure. Yep. And by the way, I know that your room's always full when you do that yeah. because, <laughs> you know, people, 
uh, it's it's uh, it's one of That's those. Why I keep going back out there? Yeah, yeah. I always say, if I don't fill the room, I ain't going back. Yeah. No, no, I understand. Yeah. No, no, I understand. Now this is a story that it needs to be told. It just needs to be told, and there's there's quite a few of them out there. Yeah, um, that I hear people talk about, and I'm just very grateful for it because listen, here I am as a, as a deputy chief, and, and I'm and the majority of our department has only a few years on the job right yeah. now. Very you know? young. Yeah. Very young. And I'm very grateful that they can learn from this. Yeah. And we could sit down and, t and, and when we do the, and train them on the rescue ropes, when they're doing their initial jumps, I always play this, this one video clip that Jeff Cool um, oh, yeah. has on YouTube. And he talks about that moment between yeah. him and Joey. Yeah. And, and I always get choked up because to me, that moment between the two of them is the true definition of brotherhood. And oh, yeah. I include sisters when I say brotherhood. Oh, yeah. But that's the true definition where both men are willing to make a sacrifice for the other. Yes. I don't think there's anything that says firefighter more than that moment, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and, and I want my members to be introduced to Joey D mm -hmm. and, and to be introduced to Jeff Cool and you and Brandon and the gentleman that lost their lives on that day because I want them to know that this is why we have this life-saving tool. Yeah. And we just need to know how to use it. Yes. And hopefully we never have to use no, it. No, yeah. Hopefully you got it there for 20 years, 25 years, whatever you do, and that's yeah. it. You know, you never use it, but it's there like the bulletproof vest for the police officer right. if you need it. Right. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you.